Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to the Well Told Tale. Each week we bring to life the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we reach part five of Death World by Harry Harrison. Our hero, Jason Denelt, is now outside the main city of Pyrrhus, and not everything is as he had been told. The deadliest animals and plants seem to only be clustered around the city itself, and the mysterious scrubbers are not the savages he has been told, but civilised and living more at one with their environment. What happens now? Will Jason finally discover what is really going on on Pyrrhus? So, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy the penultimate episode, part five of Death World, by Harry Harrison. Chapter 17 Every square inch of his body ached where the doubled gravity had pressed his flesh to the unyielding wood of the floor. His eyes were gummy and his mouth was filled with an indescribable taste that came off in chunks. Sitting up was an effort and he had to stifle a groan as his joints cracked. "'Good day, Jason,' Ress called from the bed. If I didn't believe in medicine so strongly, I would be tempted to say there is a miracle in your machine that has cured me overnight. There was no doubt that he was on the mend. The inflamed patches had vanished and the burning light was gone from his eyes. He sat propped up on the bed, watching the morning sun melt the night's hailstorm into the fields. There's meat in the cabinet there, he said, and either water or visque to drink. The visc proved to be a distilled beverage of extraordinary potency that instantly cleared the fog from Jason's brain, though it did leave a slight ringing in his ears. And the meat was a tenderly smoked joint, the best food he had tasted since leaving Darken. Taken together, they restored his faith in life and the future. He lowered his glass with a relaxed sigh and looked around. With the pressures of immediate survival and exhaustion removed, his thoughts returned automatically to his problem – What were these people really like, and how had they managed to survive in the deadly wilderness? In the city he had been told that they were savages, yet there was a carefully tended and repaired communicator on the wall, and by the door a crossbow that fired machined metal bolts he could see the tool marks still visible on their shanks. The one thing he needed was more information. He could start by getting rid of some of his misinformation. Ress, you laughed when I told you what the city people said about trading you trinkets for food. What do they really trade you? Anything within certain limits, Ress said. Small manufactured items, such as electronic components for our communicators, rustless alloys we can't make in our forges, cutting tools, atomic electric converters that produce power from any radioactive element, things like that. Within reason, they'll trade anything we ask that isn't on the forbidden list. They need the food badly. And the items on the forbidden list? Weapons, of course, or anything that might be made into a powerful weapon. They know we make gunpowder so we can't get anything like large castings or seamless tubing we could make into heavy gun barrels. We drill our own rifle barrels by hand, though the crossbow is quiet and faster in the jungle. Then they don't like us to know very much, so the only reading matter that gets to us are tech maintenance manuals, empty of basic theory. The last banned category you know about medicine. This is the one thing I cannot understand that makes me burn with hatred with every death they might have prevented. I know their reasons, Jason said. Then tell me, because I can think of none. Survival, 
It's that simple. I doubt if you realise it, but they have a decreasing population. It's just a matter of years before they will be gone. Whereas your people, at least, must have a stable, if not slightly growing population to have existed without their mechanical protections. So, in the city, they hate you and are jealous of you at the same time. If they gave you medicine and you prospered, you would be winning the battle they have lost. I imagine they tolerate you as a necessary evil to supply them with food, otherwise they wish you were all dead. It makes sense, Ress growled, slamming his fist against the bed, the kind of twisted logic you expect from junk men. They use us to feed them, give us the absolute minimum in return, and at the same time cut us off from the knowledge that will get us out of this hand-to-mouth existence. Worse, far worse, they cut us off from the stars and the rest of mankind. The hatred on his face was so strong that Jason unconsciously drew back. Do you think we are savages here, Jason? We act and look like animals because we have to fight for existence on an animal level. Yet we know about the stars. In that chest over there, sealed in metal, are over thirty books. All we have. Fiction, most of them, with some history and general science thrown in. Enough to keep alive the stories of the settlement here and the rest of the universe outside. We see the ships land in the city and we know that up there are worlds we can only dream about and never see. Do you wonder that we hate these beasts that call themselves men and would destroy them in an instant if we could? They are right to keep weapons from us, for sure as the sun rises in the morning we would kill them to a man if we are able, and take over the things they have withheld from us. It was a harsh condemnation, but essentially a truthful one, at least from the point of view of the outsiders. Jason didn't try to explain to the angry man that the city pirans looked on their attitude as being the only possible and logical one. How did this battle between your two groups ever come about? he asked. I don't know, Ress said. I've thought about it many times, but there are no records of that period. We do know that we are all descended from colonists who arrived at the same time. Somewhere, at some time, the two groups separated. Perhaps it was a war. I've read about them in books. I have a partial theory, though I can't prove it, that it was the location of the city. Location? I don't understand. Well, you know the junk men. You've seen where their city is. They managed to put it right in the middle of the most savage spot on this planet. You know, they don't care about any living thing about themselves. Shoot and kill is their only logic. So they wouldn't consider where to build their city and managed to build it in the stupidest spot imaginable. I'm sure my ancestors saw how foolish this was and tried to tell them so. That would be reason enough for a war, wouldn't it? It might have been, if that's really what happened, Jason said. But I think you have the problem turned backwards. It's a war between native Piran life and humans, each fighting to destroy the other. The life forms change continually, seeking that final destruction of the invader. Your theory is even wilder than mine, Ress said. That's not true at all. I admit that life isn't too easy on this planet, if what I've read in the books about other planets is true, but it doesn't change. You have to be fast on your feet and keep your eyes open for anything bigger than you, but you can survive. Anyway, it doesn't really matter why. The junk men always look for trouble, and I'm happy to say that they have enough. Jason didn't try to press the point. The effort of forcing Rest to change his basic attitudes wasn't worth it, even if possible. He hadn't succeeded in convincing anyone in the city of the lethal mutations, even when they could observe all the facts. Ress 
could still supply information, though. I suppose it's not important who started the battle, Jason said for the other man's benefit, not meaning a word of it, but you'll have to agree that the city people are permanently at war with all the local life. Your people, though, have managed to befriend at least two species that I have seen. Do you have any idea how this was done? Naxa will be here in a moment, Rest said, pointing to the door. As soon as he's taken care of the animals, ask him. He's the best talker we have. Talker? Jason asked. I had the opposite idea about him. He didn't talk much, and what he did say was, well, a little hard to understand at times. Not that kind of talking, Rest broke in impatiently. The talkers look after the animals. They train the dogs and dorims, and the better ones like Naxa are always trying to work with other beasts. They dressed crudely, but they have to. I've heard them say that the animals don't like chemicals, metal or tanned leather, so they wear untanned furs for the most part. But don't let the dirt fool you. It has nothing to do with his intelligence. Dorims? Are those your carrying beasts, the kind we rode coming here? Rest nodded. Dorims are more than pack animals. They're really a little bit of everything. The large males pull the ploughs and other machines, while the younger animals are used for meat. If you want to know more, ask Naxa. You'll find him in the barn. I'd like to do that, Jason said, standing up. Only I feel undressed without my gun. Take it, by all means. It's in that chest by the door. Only watch out what you shoot around here. Naxa was in the rear of the barn, filing down one of the spade-like toenails of a dorim. It was a strange scene. The fur-dressed man with the great beast, and the contrast of beryllium copper file and electroluminescent plates lighting the work. The dorim opened its nostrils and pulled away when Jason entered. Naxa patted its head and talked softly until it quieted and stood still, shivering slightly. Something stirred in Jason's mind, with the feeling of a long, unused muscle being stressed, a hauntingly familiar sensation. "'Good morning,' Jason said. Naxa grunted something and went back to his filing. Watching him for a few minutes, Jason tried to analyse this new feeling. It itched and slipped aside when he reached for it, escaping him. Whatever it was, it had started when Naxa had talked to the Dorim. Could you call one of your dogs in here, Naxa? I'd like to see one closer up. Without raising his head from his work, Naxa gave a low whistle. Jason wasn't sure it could have been heard from outside the barn, yet within a minute one of the Piran dogs slipped quietly in. The talker rubbed the beast's head, mumbling to it while the animal looked intently into his eyes. The dog became restless when Naxa turned back to work on the Dorim. It prowled around the barn, sniffing, then moved quickly towards the open door. Jason called it back. At least, he meant to call it. At the last moment, he said nothing, nothing aloud. On sudden impulse, he kept his mouth closed, only he called the dog with his mind, thinking the words, Come here, directing the impulse at the animal with all the force and direction he had ever used to manipulate dice. As he did it, he realised that it had been a long time since he had even considered using his psi powers. The dog stopped and turned back towards him. It hesitated, looking at Naxa, then walked over to Jason. Seen this closely, the beast was a nightmare hound. The hairless protective plates, tiny red-rimmed eyes and countless saliva-dripping teeth did little to inspire confidence, yet Jason felt no fear. There was a rapport between man and animal that was understood. Without conscious thought, he reached out and scratched the dog along the back where he knew it itched. Didn't know you're a talker, Naxa said. 
As he watched them, there was friendship in his voice for the first time. I didn't know either, until just now, Jason said. He looked into the eyes of the animal before him, scratched the ridged and ugly back, and began to understand. The talkers must have well-developed psi facilities, that was obvious now. There is no barrier of race or alien form when two creatures share each other's emotions. Empathy first, so there would be no hatred or fear. After that, direct communication. The talkers might have been the ones who first broke through the barrier of hatred on Pyrrhus and learned to live with the native life. Others could have followed their example. This might explain how the community of grubbers had been formed. Now that he was concentrating on it, Jason was aware of the soft flow of thoughts around him. The consciousness of the Dorim was matched by other like patterns from the rear of the barn. He knew without going outside that more of the big beasts were in the field back there. This is all new to me, Jason said. Have you ever thought about it, Naxa? What does it feel like to be a talker? I mean, do you know why it is you can get the animals to obey you while other people have no luck at all? Thinking of this sort troubled Naxa. He ran his fingers through his thick hair and scowled as he answered. Never thought about it. Just do it. Just get to know the beast real good, then you can guess what they're going to do. That's all. It was obvious that Naxa had never thought about the origin of his ability to control the animals, and if he hadn't, probably no one else had. They had no reason to. They simply accepted the power of talkers as one of the facts of life. Ideas slipped towards each other in his mind, like the pieces of a puzzle joining together. He had told Kirk that the native life of Pyrrhus had joined in battle against mankind, and he didn't know why. Well, he still didn't know why, but he was getting an idea of the how. About how far are we from the city? Jason asked. Do you have an idea how long it would take us to get there by Dorim? Half a day there, half back. Why? You want to go? Don't want to get into the city, not yet, but I would like to get close to it, Jason told him. See what Ress says, was Nax's answer. Ress granted instant permission without asking any questions. They saddled up and left at once in order to complete the round trip before dark. They had been travelling less than an hour before Jason knew they were going in the direction of the city. With each minute the feeling grew stronger. Naxa was aware of it too, stirring in the saddle with unvoiced feelings. They had to keep touching and reassuring their mounts, which were growing skittish and restless. This is far enough, Jason said. Naxa gratefully pulled to a stop. The wordless thought beat through Jason's mind, filling it. He could feel it on all sides, only much stronger ahead of them in the direction of the unseen city. Naxa and the Dorims reacted in the same way, restlessly uncomfortable, not knowing the cause. One thing was obvious now. The Piran animals were sensitive to psi radiation, probably the plants and lower life forms as well. Perhaps they communicated by it, since they obeyed the men who had a strong control over it, and in this area was a wash of psi radiation such as he had never experienced before. Though his personal talent specialised in psychokinesis, the mental control of inanimate matter, he was still sensitive to most mental phenomena. Watching a sports event, he had many times felt the unanimous accord of many minds expressing the same thought. What he felt now was like that, only 
terribly different. A crowd exulting at some success on the field or groaned at a failure. The feeling fluxed and changed as the game progressed. Here, the wash of thought was unending, strong and frightening. It didn't translate into words very well. It was part hatred, part fear, and all destruction. Kill the enemy, was as close as Jason could express it. But it was more than that, an unending river of mental outrage and death. Let's go back now, he said, suddenly battered and sickened by the feelings he had let wash through him. As they started the return trip, he began to understand many things. His sudden, unspeakable fear when the Piran animal had attacked him that first day on the planet, and his recurrent nightmares that had never completely ceased, even with the drugs. Both of these were his reaction to the hatred directed at the city. Though, for some reason, he hadn't felt it directly up to now, enough had reached through to him to get a strong emotional reaction. Ress was asleep when they got back, and Jason couldn't talk to him until morning. In spite of his fatigue from the trip, he stayed awake late into the night, going over in his mind the discoveries of the day. Could he tell Ress what he had found out? Not very well. If he did that, he would have to explain the importance of his discovery and what he meant to use it for. Nothing that aided the city dwellers would appeal to Ress in the slightest. Best to say nothing until the entire affair was over. Chapter 18 after breakfast, he told Rest that he wanted to return to the city. Then you have seen enough of our barbarian world and wish to go back to your friends to help them wipe us out, perhaps, Rest said it lightly, but there was a touch of cold malice behind his words. I hope you don't really think that, Jason told him. You must realise that the opposite is true. I would like to see this civil war ended and your people getting all the benefits of science and medicine that have been withheld. I'll do everything I can to bring that about. I'll never change, Russ said gloomily, so don't waste your time. But there is one thing you must do for your protection and ours. Don't admit or even hint that you've talked to any grubbers. Why not? Why not? Suffering death, are you that simple? They will do anything to see that we don't rise too high and would much prefer to see us all dead. Do you think they would hesitate to kill you if they as much as suspected you had contacted us? They realise, even if you don't, that you can single-handedly alter the entire pattern of power on this planet. The ordinary junk man may think of us as being only one step above the animals, but the leaders don't. They know what we need and what we want. They could probably guess just what it is that I'm going to ask you. Help us, Jason denelt. Get back among these human pigs and lie. Say you never talked to us, that you hid in the forest and we attacked you, and you had to shoot to save yourself. We'll supply some recent corpses to make that part of your story sound good. Make them believe you, and, and even after you think you have convinced them, keep on acting the part, because they will be watching you. Then tell them you have finished your work and are ready to leave. Get safely off Pyrrhus to another planet, and I promise you anything in the universe. Whatever you want, you shall have. Power, money, anything. This is a rich planet. The junkmen mine and sell the metal, but we could do it much better. Bring a spaceship back here and land anywhere on this continent. We have no cities, but our people have farms everywhere. They will find you. 
We will then have commerce, trade on our own. This is what we all want, and we will work hard for it, and you will have done it. Whatever you want, we will give. That is a promise, and we do not break our promises. The intensity and magnitude of what he described rocked Jason. He knew that Ress spoke the truth, and the entire resources of this planet would be his if he did as asked. For one second he was tempted, savouring the thought of what it would be like. Then came realisation that it would be a half-answer, and a poor one at that. If these people had the strength they wanted, their first act would be the attempted destruction of the city men. The result would be a bloody civil war that would probably destroy them both. Ress's answer was a good one, but only half an answer. Jason had to find a better solution, one that would stop all the fighting on this planet and allow the two groups of humans to live in peace. I will do nothing to injure your people, Ress, and everything in my power to aid them, Jason said. This half-answer satisfied Ress, who could see only one interpretation of it, he spent the rest of the morning on the communicator, arranging for the food supplies that were being brought to the trading site. The supplies are ready, and we have sent the signal, he said. The truck will be there tomorrow, and you will be waiting for it. Everything is arranged as I told you. You'll now leave with Naxa. You must reach the meeting spot before the trucks. Chapter 19 Truck's almost here. You know what to do? Naxa asked. Jason nodded and looked again at the dead man. Some beast had torn his arm off and he had bled to death. The severed arm had been tied into the shirt sleeve, so from a distance it looked normal. Seen close up, this limp arm, plus the white skin and shocked expression of the face, gave Jason an unhappy sensation. He liked to see his corpses safely buried. However, he could understand its importance today. Here they are. Wait till his back's turned, Naxa whispered. The armoured truck had three powered trailers in tow this time. The train ground up the rock slope and whined to a stop. Crannon climbed out of the cab and looked carefully around before opening up the trailers. He had a lift robot along to help him with the loading. Now! Maxa hissed. Jason burst into the clearing, running, shouting Crannon's name. There was a crackling behind him as two of the hidden men hurled the corpse through the foliage after him. He turned and fired without stopping, setting the thing afire in mid-air. There was the crack of another gun as Crannon fired. His shot jarred the twice-dead corpse before it hit the ground. Then he was lying prone, firing into the trees behind the running Jason. Just as Jason reached the truck, there was a whirring in the air, and a hot pain ripped into his back, throwing him to the ground. He looked around as Crannon dragged him through the door and saw the metal shaft of a crossbow bolt sticking out of his shoulder. Lucky, the Piran said. An inch lower would have got your heart. I warned you about those grubbers. You're lucky to get off with only this. He lay next to the door and snapped shots into the now quiet wood. Taking out the bolt hurt much more than it had going in. Jason cursed the pain as Crannon put on a dressing and admired the singleness of purpose of the people who had shot him. They had risked his life to make his escape look real, and also risked the chance that he might turn against them after being shot. They did a job completely and thoroughly, and he cursed them for their efficiency. Crannon climbed warily out of the truck after Jason was bandaged. Finishing the loading quickly, he started the train of trailers back towards the city. Jason had an anti-pain shot and dozed off as soon as they started. While he slept, Crannon must have radioed ahead because Kirk was waiting when they arrived. 
As soon as the truck entered the perimeter, he threw open the door and dragged Jason out. The bandage pulled and Jason felt the wound tear open. He ground his teeth together. Kirk would not have the satisfaction of hearing him cry out. I told you to stay in the buildings until the ship left. Why did you leave? Why did you go outside? You talked to the grubbers, didn't you? With each question, he shook Jason again. I didn't talk to anyone, Jason managed to get the words out. They tried to take me. I shot two, hid out till the trucks came back. Got another one of them then, Cannon said. I saw it. Good shooting. Think I got some too. Let him go, Kirk. They shot him in the back before he could reach the truck. That's enough explanations, Jason thought to himself. Don't overdo it. Let him make up his mind later. Now's the time to change the subject. There's one thing that will get his mind off the grubbers. I've been fighting your war for you, Kirk, while you stayed safely inside the perimeter. Jason leaned back against the side of the truck as the other loosened his grip. I found out what your battle with this planet is really about, and how you can win it. Now, let me sit down, and I'll tell you. More Pyrrhans had come up while they talked. None of them moved now. Like Kirk, they stood frozen, looking at Jason. When Kirk talked, he spoke for all of them. What do you mean? Just what I said. Pyrrhus is fighting you, actively and consciously. Get far enough out from this city and you can feel the waves of hatred that are directed at it. No, that's wrong. You can't, because you've grown up with it. But I can. And so could anyone else with any sort of psi sensitivity. There is a message of war being beamed against you constantly. The life forms of this planet are psi sensitive and respond to that order. They attack and change and mutate for your destruction. And they'll keep on doing so until you're all dead. Unless you can stop the war. How? Kirk snapped the word and every face echoed the question. By finding whoever or whatever is sending that message... The life forms that attack you have no reasoning intelligence. They are being ordered to do so. I think I know how to find the source of those orders. After that, it will be a matter of getting across a message, asking for a truce, and an eventual end to all hostilities. A dead silence followed his words as the Pyrrhans tried to comprehend the ideas. Kirk moved first, waving them all away. Go back to your work. This is my responsibility and I'll take care of it. As soon as I find out what the truth is here, if any, I'll make a complete report. The people drifted away silently, looking back as they went. Chapter 20 From the beginning now, Kirk said, and leave nothing out. There is little more that I can add to the physical facts. I saw the animals, understood the message. I even experimented with some of them, and they reacted to my mental commands. What I must do now is track down the source of the orders that keep this war going. I'll tell you something that I've never told anyone else. I'm not only lucky at gambling. I have enough psi-ability to alter probability in my favour. It's an erratic ability that I've tried to improve for obvious reasons. During the last ten years, I managed to study at all of the centres that do psi-research. Compared to other fields of knowledge, it is amazing how little they know. Basic psi talents can be improved by practice, and some machines have been devised that act as psionic amplifiers. One of these, used correctly, is a very good directional indicator. You want to build this machine? Kirk asked. Exactly. Build it and take it outside the city in the ship. Any signal strong enough to keep this centuries-old battle going should be strong enough to track down. 
I'll follow it, contact the creatures who are sending it, and try to find out why they are doing it. I assume you'll go along with any reasonable plan that will end this war. Anything reasonable, Kirk said coldly. How long will it take you to build this machine? Just a few days, if you have all the parts here, Jason told him. Then do it. I'm cancelling the flight that's leaving now, and I'll keep the ship here, ready to go. When the machine is built, I want you to track the signal and report back to me. Agreed, Jason said, standing up. As soon as I have this hole in my back looked at, I'll draw up a list of things needed. A grim, unsmiling man named Scop was assigned to Jason as a combination of guide and guard. He took his job very seriously, and it didn't take Jason long to realise he was a prisoner at large. Kirk had accepted his story, but that was no guarantee that he believed it. At a single word from him, the guard would turn executioner. The chill thought hit Jason that undoubtedly this was what would happen. Whether Kirk accepted the story or not... He couldn't afford to take a chance. As long as there was the slightest possibility Jason had contacted the Grubbers, he could not be allowed to leave the planet alive. The Woods people were being simple if they thought a plan this obvious might succeed, or had they just gambled on the very long chance it might work. They certainly had nothing to lose by it. Only half of Jason's mind was occupied with the work as he drew up a list of materials he would need for the psionic direction finder. His thoughts plodded in tight circles, searching for a way out that didn't exist. He was too deeply involved now to just leave. Kirk would see to that. Unless he could find a way to end the war and settle the grubber question, he was marooned on Pyrrhus for life. A very short life. When the list was ready, he called Supply. With a few substitutions, everything he might possibly need was in stock and would be sent over. Scop sank into an apparent doze in his chair, and Jason, his head propped against the pull of a gravity by one arm, began a working sketch of his machine. Jason looked up suddenly, aware of the silence. He could hear machinery in the building and voices in the hall outside. What kind of silence, then? Mental silence. He had been so preoccupied since his return to the city that he hadn't noticed the complete lack of any kind of psi sensation. The constant wash of animal reactions was missing, as was the vague tactile awareness of his PK. With sudden realisation, he remembered that it was always this way inside the city. He tried to listen with his mind and stopped almost before he began. There was a constant press of thought about him that he was made aware of when he reached out. It was like being in a vessel far beneath the ocean with your hand on the door that held back the frightening pressure. Touching the door without opening it, you could feel the stresses, the power pushing in and waiting to crush you. It was this way with the sigh pressure on the city. The unvoiced, hate-filled screams of Pyrrhus would instantly destroy any mind that received them. Some function of his brain acted as a sigh circuit breaker, shutting off awareness before his mind could be blasted. There was just enough leak-through to keep him aware of the pressure and supply the raw materials for his constant nightmares. There was only one fringe benefit. The lack of thought pressure made it easier for him to concentrate. In spite of his fatigue... The diagram developed swiftly. Meta arrived late that afternoon, bringing the parts he had ordered. She slid the long box onto the workbench, started to speak, but changed her mind and said nothing. Jason looked up at her and smiled. Confused? he asked. I don't know what you mean, she said. I'm not confused, just annoyed. The regular trip has been cancelled and our supply schedule will be thrown off for months to come. 
and instead of piloting or perimeter assignment, all I can do is stand around and wait for you, then take some silly flight following your directions. Do you wonder that I'm annoyed? Jason carefully set the parts out on the chassis before he spoke. As I said, you're confused. I can point out how you're confused, which will make you even more confused, a temptation that I frankly find hard to resist. She looked across the bench at him, frowning, one finger unconsciously curling and uncurling a short lock of hair. Jason liked her this way. As a Piran operating at full blast, she had as much personality as a gear in a machine. Once out of that pattern, she reminded him more of the woman he had known on that first flight to Pyrrhus. He wondered if it was possible to really get across to her what he meant. I'm not being insulting when I say confused, Meta. With your background, you couldn't be any other way. You have an insular personality. Admittedly, Pyrrhus is an unusual island with a lot of high-power problems that you are an expert at solving. That doesn't make it any less of an island. When you face a cosmopolitan problem, you are confused. Or even worse, when your island problems are put into a bigger context. That's like playing your own game, only having the rules change constantly as you go along. You're talking nonsense, she snapped at him. Pyrrhus isn't an island, and battling for survival is definitely not a game. I'm sorry, he smiled. I was using a figure of speech and a badly chosen one at that. Let's put the problem on more concrete terms. Take an example. Suppose I were to tell you that over there, hanging from the doorframe, was a stingwing. Meta's gun was pointing at the door before he finished the last word. There was a crash as the guard's chair went over. He had jumped from half-doze to full alertness in an instant, his gun also searching the doorframe. That was just an example, Jason said. There's really nothing there. The guard's gun vanished and he scowled a look of contempt at Jason as he righted the chair and dropped into it. You both have proved yourself capable of handling a Piran problem, Jason continued. But what if I said that there is a thing hanging there from the doorframe that looks like a stingwing, but is really a kind of large insect that spins a fine silk that can be used to weave clothes? The guard glared from under his thick eyebrows at the empty doorframe. His gun whined partway out, then snapped back into the holster. He growled something inaudible at Jason, then stamped into the outer room, slamming the door behind him. Meta frowned in concentration and looked puzzled. It couldn't be anything except a stingwing, she finally said. Nothing else could possibly look like that. And even if it didn't spin silk, it would bite if you got near, so you would have to kill it. She smiled with satisfaction at the indestructible logic of her answer. Wrong again, Jason said. I just described the mimic spinner that lives on Stover's planet. It imitates the most violent form of life there, does such a good job that it has no need for other defences. It'll sit quietly on your hand and spin for you by the yard. If I dropped a shipload of them here on Pyrrhus, you never could be sure when to shoot, could you? But they are not here now, Meta insisted. Yes, but they could be quite easily, and if they were, all the rules of your game would change. Getting the idea now? There are some fixed laws and rules in the galaxy, but they are not the ones you live by. Your rule is war unending with the local life. I want to step outside your rulebook and end that war. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like an existence that was more than just an endless battle for survival? A life with a chance for happiness, love, music, art, all the enjoyable things you have never had the time for. All the Piran's sternness was gone from her face as she listened to what he said, letting herself follow these alien concepts. 
He had put his hand out automatically as he talked, and had taken hers. It was warm and her pulse fast to his touch. Meta suddenly became conscious of his hand and snapped hers away, rising to her feet at the same time. As she started blindly towards the door, Jason's voice snapped after her. The guard, Scop, ran out because he didn't want to lose his precious two-value logic. It's all he has. But you've seen other parts of the galaxy, Meta. You know there is a lot more to life than kill and be killed on Pyrrhus. You feel it is true, even if you won't admit it. She turned and ran out of the door. Jason looked after her, his hands scraping the bristle on his chin thoughtfully. Meta, I have the faint hope that the woman is winning over the Pyrrhon. I think that I saw, perhaps for the first time in the history of this bloody war-torn city, a tear in one of its citizens' eyes. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to the penultimate episode of Death World by Harry Harrison. If you want access to more classic science fiction and fantasy stories, or if you just want to show your support for The Well-Told Tale, please consider visiting the Well-Told Tale Patreon page at patreon.com slash theWellToldTale. There's also a link in the description. Please join me next week as we reach the stunning conclusion to Death World by Harry Harrison. I hope you can join me. <laughs>